A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content, such as adult language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. June 26th, 1985. It's day three of a public hearing held by the President's Commission on Organized Crime. A witness has been sworn in and is ready to begin his testimony. Although this is a public hearing, the TV cameras have all been removed from the room. A screen has been placed in front of the witness. The Deputy Chief Counsel to the Commission explains that this is intended to protect his present appearance, that he has been in the witness security program for the past two years. Then, the questioning begins. You are from Chicago originally, that's correct? From behind the screen, a gruff, matter-of-fact voice with a thick, Chicago accent replies, That is correct. When did you move to Las Vegas? May of 1978. Did you discuss your intention to move to Las Vegas with anyone? Yes, I did. Who was that? Tony Spilatro. Why did you discuss wanting to move to Las Vegas with Tony Spilatro? He had to have permission to move out there. Why do you have to have permission? Because he was overseeing the gambling interests out there, the casinos. On behalf of who? The Chicago outfit. By that you mean the Chicago Mafia? That is correct. What was your relationship with Mr. Spilatro? I worked for him. He was my boss. What do you mean when you say that you worked for Tony Spilatro? I committed burglaries, murder, extortions from dope dealers, ran messages back and forth to the casinos, collected juice money. Of this litany, of this long list, what was your main occupation? I was a burglar. Once you got power, a lot of power, you don't care about the money no more. For the Las Vegas Review-Journal, in partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm Reed Redmond. He's one of you, you kill him. You're listening to Mobbed Up, a true story about money. You're not supposed to have a profile like that, especially in Vegas. Crime. You want to be very quiet so you can steal the money. He always said if you... Pull a gun on somebody, you finish it. Because if you don't, it's going to come back to haunt you. And I remember saying, what's going on here? And he's saying, they're trying to kill me. And I said, who's trying to kill you? And then he shut up. And the fight for control of Las Vegas. The FBI will continue to look to the future to use the latest and most sophisticated techniques to fight organized crime. The mob would have destroyed Las Vegas. It's only a question, not if, or when it would be destroyed. I was there every day with these fellas. I had no idea that there was uh, a mob. And he once told somebody, there's bodies out there in the desert, and there's more every day. But if there is one area where the word war is appropriate, it is in the fight against crime. When you grab them, you'll bring them to the desert. You're going to know where the hole has been dug. Part 1. Our Religion 
Las Vegas was better off when it was run by the mob. If you've spent some time in Vegas, you've heard it before. And if you live in Vegas, you hear it all the time. The city was better when the mob had a stranglehold on its biggest business, its lifeblood. When the Las Vegas Strip was largely mobbed up and crime families from all over the country, New York, Los Angeles, Kansas City, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Chicago, had a tight grip on the flow of cash from many of the casinos. The people who say that the mob was, uh, that Las Vegas was better in those mob days, they miss the comps. This is retired reporter and columnist Jane Ann Morrison, who wrote for the Las Vegas Review Journal for nearly four decades. Locals went to the hotels and were treated very nicely as locals, and they got, they got lots of comps and they didn't have to pay for food, drink, or shows. Um, and people took care of them. They felt, they felt, you know, like the town liked them. Oftentimes when people say they miss the mob days, it's because they're nostalgic for a time when Las Vegas was smaller, when there was less traffic, when you'd be greeted by name walking into a casino. They miss the free-flowing booze, comp shows, free parking, and buck 99 buffets. They miss things like pie night, which we'll get back to in a second. To this day, when people ask me where I'm from and I say Las Vegas, you get that, uh-huh, look. The voice you're hearing belongs to Stan Hunterton, who moved to Las Vegas in the late 70s to prosecute the mob as a special attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice Organized Crime Strike Force. When I sat down with Stan, he told me about a late uncle of his who would often say to him, The town was better off when the mob ran it. Stan says his uncle had a fair perspective, one based on his experience living in Las Vegas during the mob days. Uh, he and his wife would go to pie night, which they would have in the showrooms once a week, once a month, something like that, where you could go to a show and see the main act and get pie and coffee for a dollar, five dollars, something, you know, like that. Pie night, as far as I know, no longer exists. And you know what? That sucks. Pie night sounds great. And if that was your only experience with the mob, it makes sense you'd be nostalgic for the mob days. But as Stan would point out, in more ways than one, not everyone in Vegas got to enjoy their slice of the pie. That, of course, leaves out the, the murders, the fact that the mafia obviously wasn't paying taxes on its share of the hall. And the idea that the city was better off when the mob was running the show? Well, it's not a point of view held by everyone. It was around back then. It's uh, held by people who first were not killed by the mafia and second didn't have a family member who did it. Thursday, 
October 11th, 1979. It's about 4, 4.30 in the morning as Jeannie Listener pulls up to her home in Las Vegas. She'd rushed back from the Aladdin, a hotel and casino on the Las Vegas Strip that has since been demolished, where she worked as a cocktail waitress. Jeannie had called home multiple times during her shift that night, but all of her calls went unanswered. Her husband, Jerry Listener, was supposed to be home. Worried, Jeannie had decided to leave work to go check on him. She hurried home from the Aladdin, and when she pulled up to her usually neat, ivy-covered two-story home, something was off. The garage door was open, and the garage light was on inside. And there was blood in the entryway between the garage and the living room and leading from the garage to the backyard. When Jeannie stepped inside, the home looked like it had been ransacked. Her belongings had been tossed around, there were bullet holes marking the walls, and her sliding glass door was open and smeared with blood. Jeannie frantically searched the house for any sign of her husband. Then she went out to the backyard, where her pool was located. The water was bloodied, and she spotted a body floating, face down, wearing a t-shirt and bathing suit. His wife uh, tried to get a hold of her, apparently on the phone. This is true crime author, Dennis Griffin. And she called a couple of times, and when he didn't answer, she took off from work and came home and found the body. Jeannie screamed, recognizing the body as that of her husband, Jerry. Yeah, she uh, obviously was very upset find her husband floating in the, uh, in the swimming pool. Still screaming, she tried to pull her husband's body from the water. Some of her neighbors were woken up. One would tell the Review Journal that their dog had been barking from their backyard earlier in the night, and that at about 4 a.m., quote, I heard this woman screaming. Help me, help me, help me! My wife jumped up and got my son, so he jumps over the fence, and in the meantime, I got over there with my wife. They helped Jeannie pull her husband's body from the water. According to the neighbors, she stated, Oh, he's not dead. He's warm. But when they checked for a pulse, nothing. More neighbors showed up, and they made efforts to revive him. But the 46-year-old husband and father of two was already dead. The coroner's autopsy would reveal that Jerry Listener died of multiple gunshot wounds to the head. Hours after Jerry Listener's body was discovered, the front page of the evening edition of the Las Vegas Review-Journal featured the headline, Con Suspect Killed in Bloody Murder. At the time of his death, Jerry was a con suspect. He was suspected of running a con game in Washington, D.C., and was free on bond following an FBI arrest two months prior. He was set to be tried in a few weeks in Washington, D.C. The con game he was allegedly involved in Sounds like something straight out of a movie. In fact, an article published in the Review Journal at the time compares it to the last scene of the 1973 movie, The Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Here's how it worked, according to a conspiracy indictment filed in federal court. Jerry Listener and his associates lured a bunch of businessmen to Washington, D.C., where the targets of the scheme were supposedly going to trade suitcases full of clean cash 
for a larger amount of stolen money. Money that, presumably, never existed. When the businessmen handed over the cash, police officers, or conspirators who were dressed as police officers, would stage a fake police raid and confiscate the suitcases. The targets of the con game would walk away, gladly leaving the money behind, just thankful that they hadn't been arrested. By the time undercover officers and FBI agents infiltrated the group running the con, the indictment alleges that they netted at least $278,000 off the scheme. That's close to a million in today's money. In total, eight men were arrested. Four were former police officers, two were current officers, and one was, of course, Jerry Listener, who was ultimately charged with bribery, interstate transportation of stolen property, aiding and abetting, and grand larceny. In the days following Jerry's murder, investigators said they did not believe the Sting case was directly connected. There were, however, plenty of other rumors going around. The day after Jerry's body was discovered, another article was published in the Review Journal, in which staff writer Clyde Weiss wrote, Sources say it was believed Listener had been a bagman for the mob, a carrier of money. It was also rumored he was an FBI informant, unorganized crime. Frank, can I get you to clip this on your lapel? Oh, uh, tell me where here you want it? Or right here. This is Frank Collada. He used to know Jerry Listener, the alleged con man who was shot to death in his home. According to Frank, the two of them were both career criminals who worked together back in the day. But Frank says he's really not a bad guy anymore. I'm too old. <laughs> too old to be a bad guy? <laughs> How can I run? I can't even walk. <laughs> I met Frank for the first time in the parking lot of a restaurant on the north end of the Las Vegas Strip, the Pepper Mill, one of the few spots on Las Vegas Boulevard that hasn't really changed that much since the 1970s. That Ed restaurant's been there a little over 50 years, so we've been going in and out of there for as long as I lived there. Frank had agreed to take me on a tour of the city. It's a long story, but that's something he does pretty regularly nowadays. We chat for a bit and then head out, with Frank's security guard, Lewis, driving the vehicle. Frank insists that he doesn't need much security anymore. I'm honestly not so sure. And if there's somebody who wants to try to take a pop shot at me, I don't know how they're going to get rewarded. I don't know that. And so, you know, I just don't need, I don't feel I need security. I'm not afraid. So we drive around for a while. And Frank tells me stories about life as a criminal in Las Vegas during the 70s and 80s. Stories I can't relate to whatsoever, but am captivated by. Now, I used to live across the street. You see where it says Sunrise Villa 7? We had more cops. Cops used to be in every day playing basketball. I knew there were cops. Nobody ever played basketball on the street over there. And they'd watch this. I used to come over the fence when I was sneaking out the wall. Have somebody pick me up on the street over there. Because they were too busy thinking I wasn't going to come out the back way. They used to put transponders on my car. You know what a transponder is, right? It's like a little tracker? Yeah. They put it underneath the fender wall. The cops told me later on, they said, you were the only guy we couldn't keep a tracker on your car. And I said, why? Because you used to hit them. They got them bumps in the street. You go over, you know, it'd knock them off. <laughs> And every time I knock them off, they'd break. That's $1,300 when them things cost. And then they couldn't find me. 
So they asked the guy that was by my, around my house, is he home? At the, we don't see him. They said, yeah, he's home. So then they had to backtrack and look for that tracker. Then they just stopped putting them on me. After a couple hours of driving around Vegas, I finally have a chance to ask Frank about working with Jerry Listener. So we stopped here. Can you tell me how you met Jerry Listener? Yeah, easily. He used to hang around with a guy by the name of Joey DeFranzo. Joey DeFranzo was a friend of mine from Chicago who lived out there. And Joey DeFranzo introduced me to this Jerry Listener guy. And I didn't like this Jerry Listener guy. He had that weasel effect, you know, like, I don't know, I just didn't like him. But Jerry seemed to like Frank. Or at the very least, he liked Frank enough to want to work with him. So he started showing up at spots where Frank was known to hang out. This Jerry Listener started coming around me when I was in nightclubs out there at a jubilation and stuff. Author Dennis Griffin. Frank met him in, I believe, a bar where all these guys hung out. And he offered them a a score he had lined up. It was basically a, a con job, a sting operation, if you will. Jerry wanted Frank's help running a money scam. Not entirely unlike the scam he would be arrested for shortly before his death. The plan, according to Frank, involved filling an attaché case with stacks of $1 bills, covering the stacks with a single row of hundreds, and convincing a target that the case was packed with $400,000. They would uh, convince this guy they were going to uh, you know, launder his money for him, and let's say he had 100000 or they were going to give him 75000 that way they'd make a 25000 profit. When they actually exchanged the, exchanged the, uh, the bags of money, uh, he'd only be getting this uh, flash money, and, and they would be getting uh, the whole thing. And of course, because it's an illegal operation, the guy can't go to the cops and so forth. That's the short version anyway. Here's how Frank remembers Jerry's pitch. So we got to talk, and he always had his old lady with him, his wife. And he said, listen, he says, I got a, something I can do, and this and that. You, I like to have you involved in Ami. We could make 175000 You know, my ears start perking at 175000 It's a money ripoff, and I listened to his far-fetched story, and then I realized, I said, why do you want me on this? He said, well, because the guy I'm ripping off is connected, and he's out of Florida. And if they know I'm with you, after we rip them off, they can't do nothing, you know, because of you guys, the power you guys got. And when you say connected, you mean? The Chicago Alpha. Mm-hmm. You know, we're connected. Don't touch. Stay away from the, what the Alpha, you know. That's right. Frank was connected to the Chicago Outfit, the more common name for the organized crime syndicate out of Chicago. And this is probably an understatement, but it was an organization you wouldn't want to mess with. So according to Frank, Jerry wanted him in on his plan because of his close ties to the outfit. And remember, as Frank is telling me about all this, we're still driving around Las Vegas. So it works out, we all wind up with money, go to the next drive. Frank says he thought Jerry's plan was pretty stupid, but he figured the potential payday was worth giving the con man's idea a shot. We did it, him and I, this kid, Jerry and I, and it didn't work out. 
and I was sort of mad at him, you know, because I thought it was stupid anyway. We had a dude in Washington, D.C., and his brother-in-law was a cop out there, and we were going to use his brother-in-law as a cop. It's a confusing story, a long story. I don't want to go through it. And uh, it fell apart. Nothing happened. They went to Florida, spent money and time for money, money in hotel rooms and expenses and all this, and the whole deal fell apart. The guy got cold feet or whatever, and he canceled everything. So Frank Frank was not happy about that. It was a, a, a big waste of time and money, in his opinion. But listener offered, he, I guess he said he felt guilty, and he offered to give Frank some quaaludes or something that Frank would be able to sell for him and, and make some of his money back, make the expense money back. So that, that that's how Frank got involved with him, was, uh, was through this failed money laundering scam. The scam didn't work out, but that wouldn't be the last time Frank would be in touch with Jerry about a business opportunity. Eventually, as I'm driving around with Frank and his security guard, we reach a residential neighborhood. The neighborhood isn't far from the Las Vegas Strip, maybe a 10-minute drive. But aside from a handful of the more imposing casinos peeking out in the distance, over the tops of houses, you really wouldn't know it. It's quiet. Not exactly the kind of scenery that makes it into the What Happens Here ads they run on TV all over the country. We drive down a tree-lined street, dotted with single-family homes, and as we're approaching an intersection, Frank spots the house he wants to show me. Well, that's where he was killed in that home. See where that Mercedes is in that limousine? That was his home. After the break, what happened to Jerry Listener? Before the break, Frank Collada, his security guard, and I had driven to the former home of Jerry Listener, an alleged con man who was shot to death in 1979. As we're sitting in Frank's SUV outside the home, I'm trying to wrap my head around what happened there 40 years ago, while I happened to be sitting next to one of the only witnesses to Jerry's murder. See, Frank was at Jerry's home the night he was killed. They'd set up a meeting for the night of October 10th, 1979, to discuss a business opportunity. Frank wasn't Jerry's biggest fan after their failed money scam in Florida, but if there was money to be made, what did it matter? So Frank had reached out earlier that day to see if Jerry would be up for running another con with him. Frank called a listener and told him, he said, I need to talk to you about a deal. You know, when can we get together? And Frank said, but it's got to be private. So a listener was married, but his, his wife worked at one of the casinos. And he said, oh, my wife will be gone at work. He said, you can come over and such and such. I think it was October 10th, 79. Frank uh, said, okay. Frank headed over to Jerry's home, and Jerry let him in. And uh, they went inside, and uh, Frank said, I thought you were going to be alone. I said, I'm alone. Because I heard a noise coming from down the hall. So the listener says, oh, nobody's here, I'll show you, follow me. So the listener starts down the hallway toward the interior of the house. We're still sitting outside the house as Frank tells me what happened next. 
and he let me in. I was going to talk to him about another one of his uh, money scams, you know, that I had. Like, I, I was lying to him. Frank wasn't at this house for a business meeting. I had uh, didn't have any gloves on because uh, it would have looked a little funny, right? With gloves on. And uh, when he opened up the door, I proceeded to start shooting him in the head. And he didn't die right then. And as they said, he ran. And Frank says, I, the bullets hit. You know, he said, yeah, I couldn't miss. I was, you know, like a foot away. He said, I saw stuff fly out of his head and hit the wall. He said, but listen, just turned around and said, what are you doing? Frank wasn't using a silencer, but he tells me he'd taken some of the gunpowder out of his bullets to cut down on noise. And I broke the loads down. I made half loads out of them. As he recalls, the shots were still pretty loud. And apparently the bullets were less effective. Round after round after round hit Jerry in the head. But to Frank's surprise, his target was still standing. And once he processed what the hell was happening, that Frank was here to kill him, he tried to get away. Frank chased him and kicked the rest of the rounds into his head as they were running. And listeners still didn't go down. He finally, when he got to the garage door, collapsed to the floor. And Frank, uh, now Frank has an empty gun at this point. Blisner's thrashing around. Frank gets on top of him. Now he's, but Blister's still very lively. And Frank's trying to find something else to use to finish him off. There's a knife on the ledge or windowsill or something nearby. But Frank can't quite reach it. There's an electric water cooler there that he can reach, so he yanks the cord out of the water cooler, the electric cord, and he's going to strangle listener with it. And he, when he wraps it around his, uh, his neck, the cord broke. Somehow, Jerry was still alive. But Frank hadn't shown up alone. He had backup, and at some point his partner, a guy named Wayne Matecki, came in to see what was taking so long. I emptied that revolver in his head, then he still was alive. So I had, we had to reload it. Fortunately, we brought, he brought extra bullets, the guy that was with me. And uh, I emptied it out in his head, and then he finally died. Before leaving, Frank and his partner Wayne did what they could to cover their tracks. They didn't want to leave fingerprints on Jerry's clothes, so they dragged the body out to the pool and slid it into the water, legs first. As we slowly drive past the front of the home, Frank points at a concrete brick wall wrapped around the backyard. Swoop the house, you can see it? Just swoop it. The swimming pool where I dumped his body was right behind this wall here. See this brick wall? That's where I trim in the water. After sliding the body into the pool, Frank and Wayne went back into the house. After they, they finished listening off, they ransacked the house or searched the house because they were concerned that he might have recording devices or, or something. So they wanted to make sure there was no evidence. And when they went through the house looking for stuff, that had the effect of making it look perhaps like a burglar. They didn't intend it to do it, but the police kind of thought that, well, maybe, you know, it was a hit because the listeners uh, ran jury stuff and the killers 
intentionally tried to make it look like a burglary to, you know, to throw everybody off. But it, it wasn't done with that intent. It was, um, it, it was done because they were looking for any possible evidence that might tie them into the murder. The two killers drove off, leaving behind a disturbing and bloody scene. The scene Jerry's wife would come home to in a matter of hours. So, why did Frank Collada murder Jerry Listener? Well, Frank tells me he was acting on orders from his boss. Orders that he couldn't say no to. When you're ordered to kill somebody, you better do it. If you don't, they're going to kill you. They wouldn't come to you and tell you to kill so-and-so if they thought you would say no. You know what I mean? His boss at the time? Anthony Spilatro, a high-profile reputed enforcer for the Chicago Outfit. For reference, if you've ever seen the Scorsese film, Casino, Tony Spilatro served as the inspiration for Joe Pesci's character, Nicky. Here's Jeff Schumacher, vice president of exhibits and programs at the Ma Museum. When you look at the history of organized crime in America, you really can break down the, the kinds of mobsters that are most prominent. There are the, uh, the people who are interested in making money, and believe that there are ways to influence the, the society and the, and the system through money and coercion without resorting to violence. And then there are the, there's the other faction of the mob that sees violence as the, the primary means toward gaining power and more money and eliminating problems. According to Jeff, Tony Spilatro was the latter. Spilatro was a guy who had the old-school mentality that violence is a way to solve problems. Whose decision was it to, to take out Listener? Was that you or was that Tony? It was Tony. Were you in on the decision? No, he told me I got to do it. Jerry Listener was a problem. At least that's the way Frank Collada says he and Tony saw it. He tells me they'd gotten word that Jerry was providing information about them to the feds. Remember, when he was killed, Jerry was awaiting trial for a laundry list of charges stemming from a money scam in Washington, D.C., giving up information on a high-profile reputed mobster like Tony Spilatro could go a long way if Jerry was shopping for a reduced sentence. See, when we found out, we found out the same day that the listener was testifying on us by the guy that used to own Villa Diest, he called us. Jerry Listener's lawyer was in there. And he was talking to Joe Pignatelli, and he told him that he had a client that lived out here that was testifying on uh, two people. So Joe Pignatelli, he acted like a dummy, and he says, what's their names? Maybe I might know of them. They might be my customer. So the guy says, Tony Splatcho and Frank Collada. And Joe Pignatelli says, I never heard of them. So when the lawyer left to go back to North Virginia, or whatever, Virginia, where he was from, Joe calls us, Tony, and Tony calls me, and we come down here, and Joe tells us, and then when we walked out of there, we didn't say nothing to Joe Pig what we were going to do or what Tony wanted me to do. As soon as we got out of the door, he says, you know what that means, don't you, Frankie? And I said, yep. He says, you got to kill him. He says, or else he's going to put us both in jail. The feds don't know if he's lying or not. That was it. Frank and Tony got word that Jerry might be rolling over on them. So... He had to be taken out of the picture. 
This was the world they lived in. You looked out for yourself, and you looked out for the organization, the outfit. If Jerry was a rat, he had to go. Frank would later tell me that this was just the code he was raised by. All my life I was raised as a, you never become a, a rat. That's against our religion, let's say. After he received the orders, it was up to Frank to figure out how to get the job done. So when I uh, was ordered to kill him, it took about two or three weeks before we could line it up, you know. What you? How'd you prepare? Well, you, you know, we had to break the bullets down. Tony said use half loads, less noisier in the house, but that, that proved to be a, not correct. It uh, was very loud. The bullet shots were very loud. The listener hit wasn't the first time Frank had been ordered to kill someone. Before we drive back to the pepper mill, the restaurant where I met Frank to go out on a tour, Frank tells me there had been other outfit jobs. Sure were. Do you reflect on that a lot? Is Do it I something think about you're... it a lot? Yeah. No, not no more. I did for a long time, but not no more, you know, I... You, you need to let it go by you. It's got to go by you. You're going to wind up in a nut house if you think about it, you know. Here's Frank recalling more details about the night of the murder at a 2016 event held at the Mom Museum. So, uh, I did. I wound up getting Wayne. And I drove to Burbank, flew to Chicago, met Wayne, asked him if he wanted to do it. He said, yeah. That night we flew back out. We went to Burbank, California, and we drove to Vegas reason why we went through that because at that time anybody coming from Chicago they would know uh, they had the cameras and all that shit then back then too so it all happened in one night how do you feel about this today I mean regret uh, any how do you feel about what well of course I have regret now you know but at the time I didn't have regret because it was just part of my life I knew no better I didn't know any better, and now I regret it, but I can't bring them back. I can't bring any of them people back. It was the wrong thing to do. But I was in an organization with people that was everything was justified. And if you didn't, if I didn't do that, I would have been whacked. So you don't go up to somebody and say, I want you to kill this guy. If you say no, then you're dead. That's the way it was with the organization, the Alpha. Frank tells me you have to find some way to justify it. And the way he saw it, he was fighting a war. You know, of course I feel terrible about what I've done. But I always justified it. You might get a little upset when I want to say this. But you know, our military guys, they go overseas and they kill a lot of people, you know, for their country, you know? The Alpha was my country, let's put it like that, you know? So we did what we had to do. And, uh... That's the way I want it to happen. On part two of Mobbed Up, Frank Collada meets the man who would eventually bring him out to Las Vegas. So we met in the middle of the street. And he went to grab my collar, and I pushed him away. And he says, this is my territory. I'm the only one allowed on this street, not you. You, don't, you can't even get permission. And I said, what's your name? 
And he says, Tony Splatcho. And I looked up at the sign. I knew what I was doing. I said, I don't see your fucking name on the sign. This has been part one of Mobbed Up, a production of the Las Vegas Review Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. Guess you could say we're connected. Mobbed Up is brand new, so if you're enjoying it, please subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Help others find out about us by telling your friends and your enemies and leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This series is reported and produced by me, Reed Redmond. If you have any tips, feedback, or questions you want to share with me, you can reach me on Twitter, at Red Redmond, or send an email to rredmond at reviewjournal.com. Our sound designer and audio editor for this series is Jonathan McMichael, who also composed our theme song. Special thanks to Frank Collada for taking me on his tour, something you can learn more about at holeinthewallgang.biz. Thanks also to Jane Ann Morrison, Stan Hunterton, Dennis Griffin, and Mob Museum Vice President of Exhibits and Programs, Jeff Schumacher, for sitting down with me for this episode. Select audio clips used in the intro to this episode are from the Oral History Research Center and the UNLV Library Special Collections and Archives. Music and sound effects are from Stephen Arnold Music and Motion Array. You can learn more about the Mob Museum by visiting themobmuseum.org, and you can learn more about Mobbed Up by visiting reviewjournal.com backslash podcasts. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.